Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But we are absolutely designed to be attractive peers and to do everything possible to become attractive peers. You know, testosterone, as one example, is not only there to make our voices lower and grow hair on our bodies and big muscles, which is important for survival as you become an adult. It's also there to clue us into the social zeitgeist. It's all about what's my role in this hierarchy. And once kids hit puberty, they care immensely more than they have before and more than they ever will again about how others perceive them. Mm-hmm. And it's because of testosterone that we start to gauge ourselves against others. And, you know, it's not always competition and, and fighting in terms of fighting or, or outracing someone or being a better football player, you know, in, in, in various settings, depending on what the, the culture is, that will determine how people compete. So, you know, in, in monasteries, Tibetan monks in training, adolescent boys compete to be more kind and compassionate than other Tibetan Buddhist monks. So one of the lessons here for parents is that you really want to think about what social groups your kid is in and you want to help to guide that as much as you can because if they're on the swim team and the goal is to be the fastest swimmer, that's like a really great goal to have or to be one of the better swimmers. Huh. But if they're not getting fulfillment from swimming or academics or playing in a rock band or whatever else it is, they'll find themselves at the bottom of this pecking order and other brain changes will absolutely take effect that will make it more likely that they hang out with kids who aren't engaged in such exciting things and are, are not doing well in school and using drugs and that kind of thing. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jess, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Megan Poe, who's probably my favorite guest of the whole year. Um, you know, I had a fascinating conversation with her. So when she recommended you, I figured, okay, this is a no brainer. Anybody who she sends our way, I have to talk to. So uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that end up influencing the choices that you've made with your life and your career? That's a great question. That's a, that's a really nice question. I was a bit of a I wouldn't say loner in high school, but I straddled many groups and I often felt that I was sort of doing my own thing. So I came into high school like everybody else in a suburb of San Francisco, moved from the same elementary school to the same middle school to the same high school. Each year, more kids were added or each each jump to middle school and high school, more kids were added. But by the time I hit high school, I was trying to be like everybody else. And I joined the football team and I played football 
I joined a rock band. I was playing guitar by then for about a year and I was getting kind of good. And so I joined a rock and roll band in the evenings. And that was sort of trying to find my identity there or my my peer group. And so I was and I was always a friendly kid. So I fit in with lots of different groups. But by the time I was, you know, probably the so. You know, part of my story is, of course, then that I was doing terribly in school. So I'm playing on a rock uh, on a football team. I'm playing in the rock band and I'm just failing English uh, amongst and getting maybe C's in other classes. And my dad just goes berserk. Now, I'm the youngest of five kids and both of my brothers didn't go to college. My sisters both went to college saying they're going to be a doctor like my father. And within a semester or two, they decided to go into fields like forestry and nursing. And so my parents, I think, were very invested in me not having that kind of college experience and making it through college. And so when they saw a D in freshman English or an F, whatever it was, they hit the roof and they did something that at the time made me very angry, but in retrospect was really outstanding parenting, which they hadn't done with my brothers, unfortunately. And what they did was first to say, okay, you're quitting the football team and quitting the football team two weeks before the end of the season, when you're already on the third string of this, you know, probably four strings of football team, mm-hmm. uh, every, the, every freshman is boy is sort of dying to, to have a role in this. And I was fine, but I was not terribly big or especially fast. And I was, a, I was a good friend to lots of people and being, sort of having to go to the coach and saying, I have to leave the team was remarkably humiliating. But I remember being very straight faced about it. And then the coach the next day tells the team that I had to leave. I mean, there are like 40 boys in the team. It's, I don't know if anybody would have noticed, but he, he says, you know, just had to leave the team. And it's not like he was crying or anything, but he was really disappointed to have to leave the team. And so all my friends come up to me saying, Hey, I heard you were crying when you uh, quit the team. So, you know, a lot of lack of sensitivity on all sorts of angles. My dad, I think, really should have probably let me finish out the season. But anyway, I had to quit the rock band. And then my mom or dad were home after school every day for the next couple of months. Either And if they couldn't be home, they would call me and check on me regularly. And of course, we didn't have cell phones. So they, they knew if I was home, I was answering the phone. And uh, I answered the phone and they would say, get your homework done, get your homework done. And I started studying three and four hours a day to catch up because I was very behind. I, I mean, I fought like crazy for months and I think I pulled my grade point to about a B by the end of my uh, first semester. But the second semester I went back to school, the fights settled down a little bit. My parents stayed on my back, but in a supportive way. And I started getting into school and I started actually enjoying school. A lot of this goes along with the book I just wrote called Born to be Wild, which is really about adolescent development. And in this process around you know the high school years, your dopamine neurons, which are a signal of reward or potential for reward and lead us. Dopamine is really a a learning neurochemical. It leads us to what it is that we should be doing that's good for our survival. And as we age and we become more intellectually engaged, dopamine synapses start to make it to our frontal cortex, which makes intellectual material more interesting. And this is why the newspaper is more interesting to a 15 year old than it is to a 10 year old. Mm Or why certain movies or topics, you know, you you want to read something. You're much more interested in the Great Gatsby when you're 16 than you are when you're 12 because these stories of people in their lives start to make more sense to you. So I started to get into school and I think I hit it at the right time. My dopamine was hitting my frontal cortex and by spring I got straight A's. My parents were off my back and I was getting now a lot of self-efficacy and support and engagement from my academic work. So back to your original question, which is what peer group was I in? So I started out in kind of a tough peer group, the kids that I had known 
from middle school and elementary school who were my closest friends, many of whom partied all weekend, would drink three six packs of beer on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And I was doing that too, would get high after school. And I was doing that too. And then, you know, as I started to get more involved in school, I started to meet a whole other group of kids who were really you know, strong academically. But to me, they were mostly nerds or they were, you know, all on the swim team or something. And that wasn't my thing. So I kind of straddled these smart kids during the day at school. And in the afternoons and evenings, I hung out with my buddies who played football in the park and baseball and would sit around a keg and drink on the weekend. Mm -hmm. But I found myself wanting to drink and smoke and do those things less and less because I was really getting my satisfaction out of school. So I had, and I still played music, but I played in sort of more jam sessiony kind of things. And I stopped playing organized sports, but I started taking bike rides or jogging after school so I could stay in shape typically for an hour, pretty much most afternoons. And then I'd come and do three or four hours of homework. And, you know, I had some very, very close friends, uh, I would say two of whom at least I'm really still close with now and a number of whom I'm, I'm close with when I have the opportunity. And, but I did feel like I straddled things, you know, when, when I remember one day, maybe junior or senior year when school was canceled. It was like a gas leak at the school. So it was like 10 in the morning and everybody was left out and let that to go. And the smart kids all went off to do their little smarty thing. And the, the, the partier kids all sort of went off to do their party thing. And I was sort of like, huh, who do I go with? Where do I go? Who do I belong with? Now, I think that's partly a universal experience in high school. You're not sure who you belong with and how, hmm. but I think that answers your question. You know, I was sort of in between and I felt that I felt like a kid who worked really hard, but whose sensibilities were more with the regular kids, not necessarily the studiers, but I had a lot intellectually in common with the studiers and got a lot of fulfillment out of that. Hmm. Interesting. A um, couple of questions come from that. One, you know, as, as you were saying that the, the thought that crossed my mind is we spend, you know, all of our adolescence trying to fit in. And then by the time we get to adulthood, we're spending all of our time trying to stand out. At least, you know, I feel that in the world that, you know, we live in today, because, you know, when you're in the working world, what are you trying to do? You're trying to stand out as, a, you know, an outstanding performer. Or if you're a creative person who's doing work on the internet, you want your work to stand out in some way. Why is that? Why is it that we go from desperately wanting to fit in to desperately trying to stand out? So that's also a good question. And I, and I think that these things, I think they're actually all going on at the same time. I think there is some waiting of it. Yeah. You know, I saw a comic years ago about a little boy complaining to his mother and he was basically, he said to her something like, I just want to be different like everybody else. <laughs> You know, at 13 or 14, I just want to be different like everybody else. The idea that, you know, we all need to be sort of our own person, yet we care so much about what others think. Now, when we're 13 or 14 or 15 or 19 or 22, we care a great deal about what others think of us. And I, I believe this is built into our genetic code. I think this is what evolution has done to us because these are your peak reproductive years from about 15 to 30. And so it's really, really important that we get others to think that we are good so that we will be a good and select mate. So there's no question in my mind that, and I can go through the brain systems if you want to yeah, talk about absolutely. and Please what do. their role is, but we are absolutely designed to be attractive peers and to do everything possible to become attractive peers. You know, testosterone as one example is not only there to make our voices lower and grow hair on our bodies and big muscles, which is important for survival as you become an adult. It's also there to clue us into the social zeitgeist. It's all about What's my role in this hierarchy? And once kids hit puberty, they care immensely, more than they have before and more than they ever will again about how others perceive them. Mm -hmm. And it's because of testosterone that we start to gauge ourselves against others. And 
you know, it's not always competition and, and fighting in terms of fighting or, or out racing someone or being a better football player, you know, in, in, in various settings, depending on what the, the culture is, that will determine how people compete. So, you know, in, in monasteries, Tibetan monks in training, adolescent boys compete to be more kind and compassionate than other Tibetan Buddhist monks. So one of the lessons here for parents is that you really want to think about what social groups your kid is in and you want to help to guide that as much as you can because if they're on the swim team and the goal is to be the fastest swimmer, that's like a really great goal to have or to be one of the better swimmers. Huh. But if they're not getting fulfillment from swimming or academics or playing in a rock band or whatever else it is, they'll find themselves at the bottom of this pecking order and other brain changes will absolutely take effect that will make it more likely that they hang out with kids who aren't engaged in such exciting things and are, are not doing well in school and using drugs and that kind of thing. Other hormones, oxytocin, which many people know about as being important for milk letdown and helping to halt ovulation after a baby's born so a mother can pay attention to this first baby. Oxytocin also clues us into who's in the peer group, you know, who who is in and who is out and is in part responsible for adolescent cliques. Estrogen. We know that when a woman is ovulating, around the 48 hours that she ovulates, that's her most fertile time of the month. And estrogen does other things too. It makes a woman's face a little bit more symmetrical. Women who are in the throes of ovulation find male enhanced testosterone features like a chiseled face and, and stubble in the beard and a low voice. They'll, they'll report when they look at pictures and studies and things that they find these things more attractive when they're ovulating. Uh, women tend to dress a little more provocatively. The blouse gets a little bit more unbuttoned when they're ovulating. And this is all to prepare for sexual engagement so they have the best chance of getting pregnant. And men who are in the presence of when women who are ovulating release more testosterone. And they sit closer to these women and they touch them more and they flirt them with them more. And all of this is is really in our code. We're mostly unaware of this sort of thing. Most women don't even know when they ovulate and most men don't know why all of a sudden the woman they work with is kind of more attractive this time <laughs> at, at this moment. You know, it's like, well, I, it's like she smells really good today. Have you noticed that? You know, th there's this kind of sense that we're, we're being led around to some degree, of course, by our DNA. And these, these hormones don't make us do these things, but they give us the opportunity and they prompt us or prime us to do these things. So I think that the hormones are very important and they clue you young people into the, what their peers are thinking. So the first part of your question is, why do we care so much about what others think of us when we're, we're high school students or yeah. young adults? The answer is we are led to do it by hormones because it's to our evolutionary advantage to mate at this point when we're our most fertile, our most strong, and we have the best chance of passing on our DNA. So we really better care what other people think because if we don't care what they think, we're not gonna get a good mate. Wow. The second part of that is, you know, what happens with age. And I would I would suggest that many of us still care a great deal about what others think of them. And they still, of course, do, you know, believe that that matters. Somebody said to me just recently, the rule of 13, 40, 60, which gets to your point at 13, you just completely care about what other people are thinking of you and you can't think of anything else. At 40, you realize that you don't care what they think about you anymore and it doesn't even matter what they think. And at 60, you realize no one ever thought of you at all anyway. They were all too busy <laughs> thinking about themselves. Yeah, exactly. I tell this to college students who I teach, not exactly in those terms, but I say as you age, you know, I kind of leave out the 40, but I say as you, yeah. as you get older, what you realize is that most people 
are just sort of so nervous about their own situation. They're not even paying attention to you in terms of, you know, the nervousness or the things that you're worried about, which to them would be ridiculous if they heard you talk about those things. It's funny. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. Well, it's funny you say that. I was talking to my friend about dating and he said, you realize like every time you go on a date and you're worried about what this girl is thinking about you, she's thinking of the exact same thing as you are. She's worried about what you think about her. Totally. And so, you know, we put on all these defenses and we sort of act like, oh, I don't care. Devil may care. I'm so comfortable and relaxed. But it's all uh, it's all an act. Those who can contain their anxiety well or channel it into humor or, you know, um, optimism or gratitude or, you know, some sort of altruism. Those people tend to do very, very well. But those who don't hide it well and can't put on a defense and feel like, oh, that's false, they have more trouble and they have more trouble connecting to people socially. So with age to your other half, I I think I would say at 40 or 50 or middle age, people still care about what others think and and sometimes desperately because they're really building their careers now. So they care for sort of a different reason. Mm -hmm. It's not so much mating. It's more about being successful and supporting your family and making sure everybody's going to be financially okay and your ego fulfillment and, and all of that. But it definitely does uh, decrease over time. And you get to the point where, you know, at some point it, you know, there, there's things are much more balanced in other words with time. But I think that the, the real difference is what happens when you're young and the need to be an attractive mate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the, the other things that's really interesting to me about the beginning of this story is, is, you know, sort of the, the dramatic shift in habits and, you know, personality almost, um, are there one, you know, can you get to a point in adult life where it's not possible to make these kinds of shifts? Um, you know, are, are things set in stone? Cause I know we've, we've done a lot of, you know, a lot of research that people like you have done has shown neuroplasticity as possible. Like I can tell you, I'm a very different person than I was even in college. And at the beginning of my career, like the level of discipline and focus I have is night and day difference, um, from years of doing creative work. And I, I'm just curious, you know, like, do we reach a point at which it's harder to make, you know, those kinds of changes? And, you know, what do you say to, to parents who see kids that are, you know, headed down a wrong path? Yeah. So the, the first part of that question is there is no doubt that the first 12 years of our lives, our brain is more plastic, more flexible than it will ever be again. At this point, our gray matter or the nerve cells themselves are growing very rapidly. So if you haven't learned a second language by the time you're 12, if you haven't learned to ride a bicycle, if you haven't learned to uh, throw a baseball or play piano, these things are going to be much more difficult 10 years later or even five years later. Because what happens at this point is your brain says, okay, now we're heading towards puberty. Now we're heading towards reproduction. So now we know what we do well. Now we know that this person is not going to be a baseball player or a piano player. He's going to be a gardener. He's got to be really good at identifying plants, at pulling things, at bending over, all this kind of stuff. So that's where we're going to emphasize our brain enhancement and strength. We're going to myelinate or put these fatty sheaths on the neurons that are important for that process and other processes that are like it. We're going to make the connections between the parts of the brain that do this activity really, really fast. And we're going to let some other nerve tissue go because this guy's never thrown a baseball in his life. So it doesn't really matter if he throws a baseball. It doesn't really matter if he plays piano. He doesn't do much math. So we're not going to focus there. Now, it's not that you can't learn to do those things later in life. It's not that you can't learn to be exceptional at those things, but it's much harder. So what happens starting around 12 is that your brain starts to replace about 1% of its gray matter every year or its nerve potential essentially with one matter with 1% of 
myelinated superhighways or fast streams between parts of the brain so that in the teen years and early adulthood, the brain starts to talk to itself much, much better. So you now have the ability for your parts of your brain to communicate better, which is great, but you're, you're left with a little bit less brain flexibility. And 20 or 30 years later, now we're talking a significant change has taken place. So try to teach riding a bicycle to someone who's 20 who's never ridden a bike. Mm-hmm. It's very scary for them, and it's almost impossible. Try to take on a new language at 30 years of age, 40 years of age. To get that accent is so difficult. But if you learn a foreign language before 12, you'll speak like a native if you are immersed in it enough to develop the accent. So there are a number of things like this that that essentially we know now about the brain that make learning things earlier easier. Again, it doesn't mean you can't do it later, but it's just easier. So, you know, we've looked at this uh, specifically in terms of, of skill. And, and it's funny, I always wondered why it is that I, I managed to learn my native language uh, without ever opening a book about it. We spent six weeks in India, we left and I was fluent. And to this day, I can't dissect that process for you. Yeah. Yeah. You just had it. it was around you enough. Your brain was open enough to it. You weren't even conscious about it. You just figured it out. But if you were to go back to, you know, or to another country now, let's say you go to China now and you're you're there trying to learn Chinese, you know, it would be easier for you than many other people simply because you know a second language already. And Uh so the tracks in your brain are more enhanced. And so it'll be easier. But still learning Chinese would be a whole lot harder than it was to learn your native Indian language once upon a time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've looked at this specifically from the area of, of skill development, and I'm curious, uh, you know, can you make changes to, you know, particular areas like self-esteem, sense of self-worth, like all of those things as you get older, or do those things get like cemented as well? Um, yes. Because, you know, those things I feel like have such a profound impact on our relationship with other people. Yeah, and, and that's an area of great emerging interest. And in my case, that interests me a great deal because I'm interested in why adolescents take risks and what happens when they do take risks and how people make decisions. And so we've been learning over the last 15 years or so, and in large part because of schools that have invested in this sort of thing and some of the brain research we have, that young people, at least, can enhance some of these resilience type factors like self-esteem or self-efficacy, the ability to actually accomplish what you set out to accomplish, believe you're capable of it, have a more internalized sense of control or locus of control, things like emotion regulation, like how do I handle the the inevitable bumps in the road that life is going to send my way? How do I handle a breakup? How do I handle um, getting a bad grade in a class? How do I handle a friend telling me they don't want to go to the party with me? These things can be devastating for some. And of course, we've talked about puberty already and why they're so intense for young people. And most people, you know, the pain of this dulls over time as they get to to understand how the world works. But I think that there's also a lot we can do to train people for these bumps and to help them to manage these things. So A, they feel support. B, they're engaged in healthy practices that will help them absorb this. For example, getting enough sleep and getting enough exercise and these kind of things can actually make a huge difference to the brain and how we tolerate insults. And then finally, actually teaching them very specific skills. And I think that honestly, we should be doing this in school really from a very young age. How do you identify emotions? Hmm. How do you know when you're feeling nervous or sad or scared or angry? And how do you then work with your mood when you don't want to feel that way and keep a general sense of um, if not total control, at least a sense of knowing how to modulate your emotions a little bit, which we can teach to young people. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that begs a lot of other questions. You know, I'm thinking about this from the standpoint of, you know, sort of social interaction when we're, we're young, right? So interacting with the opposite sex seems like it's kind of a critical life skill. And you wonder, why isn't it taught in school? Are we not of the right age to really understand and appreciate it um, or, or to really process it? Um, and also, what is, what is the impact of our social relationships and our parental relationships when we're younger on how our relationships play out as adults? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. The idea of how is it that our our early relationships influence how we end up behaving. Now, being raised by an attentive caregiver, whoever that is, a parent, a surrogate, 
it's it's all good. So you don't have to be raised by both your biological parents and you don't have to, you know, you can be raised by a single parent and you can spend a lot of your time the first few years of life at a daycare center where neither of your parents are present for much of the day. As long as you have attentive um, engaged caregivers who show you affection and support and take care of your basic needs and are responsive to you. And as you hopefully are raised in that kind of environment, then as you develop, you will start to you know, model the relationships that were that were laid on to you. Now, there's some individual variation, of course, amongst people. Some people are better at, you know, picking up on social cues and some people are more responsive in one way or another. But in general, our parents have a huge amount to do with how it is that we learn to socialize and engage. Prior to puberty, when our kids aren't in school, they spend the vast majority of their time with their parents or other adults. Post-puberty, when our kids aren't in school, they spend less than 10% of their time with their parents. I mean, I have a 16-year-old, almost 17-year-old son. He's a junior in high school, and I love being with him, and he loves being with me, but I see him at dinner, and then we're around each other at night when there's homework, and sometimes I help, and I often lie with him in his bed at night before he goes to sleep or whatever and chat with him for a bit. But in terms of like real amount of time, I mean, maybe we're around each other a few hours a day, but we're engaging directly probably about an hour a day. And um, that's not an awful lot when you consider that when he was eight, you know, his mother or I were engaging with him, you know, seven hours a day. Mm Mm-hmm. So they learn a lot more from their peers as they age, and they're much more influenced by their peers. And it's easy for parents to sort of check out of this and to stop talking to their kids about certain things or just, well, they'll let me know if there's a problem. But I really want to encourage parents, as I do in my work, to stay engaged and to talk to their kids about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and and to talk to their kids about all these different things that they're concerned about because our kids will get that information one way or another. And if they don't get it from us, they'll get it from peers or the computer, and often it will be misinformation. And so there's still a huge parenting job for us to do as our kids age and they will model those relationships and take them into their life. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions is why is it that we don't teach this in our schools? Do you think we're not, um, like our kids not ready for it at that age? No, I think the kids are ready. I think what's happened is, you know, we've had a long standing, uh, difficulty talking about emotions as a culture, a and B we've had difficulty, Uh, finding science that supports the human relation training, essentially, or the character education training. But now we have some good data. Now we know that there are three things you can do that will actually make the quality of your brain's connections better. Exercise, aerobic exercise, mindfulness meditation, or meditation where you're quietly breathing, and yoga. Those three things We know now clearly after two months, you have stronger brain connections from your frontal cortex to your emotional limbic brain, which means you can manage emotions better. We know that sleep also contributes to that process, and you see brain changes with that as well. So these are four things that we know we can be doing. If we do nothing else, we can do those things in school. But only a minority of kids get good exercise. The Center for Disease Control says we should start high school no earlier than 8.30, but only 20% of schools in the country adhere to that number. And in fact, if you ask me, and I do a lot of work in sleep, we should probably not start high school before 10 in the morning because our kids are on a delayed sleep cycle. That's how they're built. And they're on that because of evolution too, because we needed the strongest, the toughest, those with the best immune response, the greatest speed, the greatest tolerance for pain and temperature extremes to be 
guarding the cave or guarding the treehouse at night. We needed those guys when our vision is bad and at night and we don't see very well. We need the strongest among us to protect our cave. And so they're geared to go to bed during those adolescent years at four in the morning, five in the morning. And that's when the oldest people get up, when it's light out, when it's more safe. And then they guard the cave and the adolescents can sleep till noon. This is what we see our kids doing automatically anyway. We built a society that works entirely against that. And so I think there's a lot we can do. We're just starting to see some movement in this direction. And I think we'll continue to see more in the decades to come. Hmm. So, you know, um, I want to talk briefly about um, mental illness or, or, you know, cognitive dysfunctions like depression, ADHD, and all of that kind of stuff. Because I know you've, you've referenced quite a bit of it in the book. Um, as somebody who's dealt with both, uh, you know, and in many cases, mine have been circumstantial. Like, you know, you get a bad grade or, you, you know, something doesn't go right in your life and suddenly it kind of sends you into a tailspin. Um, what does your work show, uh, you know, with kids about all of this and, and adolescents? about all of this and of course you know how do we deal with it uh, more effectively as we evolve into adulthood yeah so again the idea that mental illness is not based upon necessarily how your parents raised you although that can certainly contribute and more upon how we learn to think about things and how we behave in this world really started to take hold in the 60s and over the next three decades or so we developed a number of good therapies cognitive behavior therapies of which there are many different types, but they all generally tend to work for the treatment of anxiety and depression, many for insomnia, many for trauma, post-traumatic stress. So these treatments are very effective. And again, I think we can teach these preventatively to kids, but that's very new to be doing that. We've known since the 80s and 90s that these treatments work for adults in, in these various things I've been talking about, anxiety and depression and so forth. And then in the 90s and early 2000s, we studied these things in adolescence. Some of these same treatments, but not all, work with prepubertal children. It's harder for them to grab onto the cognitive or the thinking sort of um, analysis of their thoughts and the cognitive distortions, as we call them, or the negative thoughts. But adolescents can certainly do it. And so we've shown that in many studies now for depression and anxiety, and we continue to, to teach that to kids. And again, as I said earlier, my big push is to try to teach this preventatively so at least people are aware of it. They know that it exists. They know if they have a problem, it's a legitimate uh, place to go for help. And they can hopefully learn to manage a lot of their negative thoughts as they age and go through life so that they don't necessarily need to get to the point where they need a therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was 37 years old um, when I entered a therapist office for the first time. And, you know, after two weeks, I was like, what the hell took me so long to do this? I should have done this 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the experience for a lot of people. And the reason you didn't is because you're high functioning and you were doing fine. Maybe you weren't optimized, but you were doing well. You probably had relationships, you had jobs, you were making a living. So, you know, when you felt stressed, you're like, okay, I'm feeling stressed, but everybody feels stressed or maybe it's just me. I don't know, but I'll keep going. I'll keep going. And you were lucky not to have had a major depressive episode or a major anxiety problem or something else or a drug problem. But some people do, and those people get help, but they're off or often do. But it's often on the later side. It's not that we can't help them, but now we're trying to do damage control. Whereas I think there's a lot we can do preventatively. And just like you said, you know, think about this. We spend statistically about 30 to 35% of our life asleep. You're how old now? 39. 39. Have you ever taken a class either in, in school anywhere that taught you anything about sleep? No, I just read Ariana Huffington's book. Yeah, that's it. And you read that as an adult. Yeah. But no ever taught you anything growing up in your education about how you spend a third of your life. Yeah. That's incredible to me. And what about what we do all day long? We think our brains are busy. We're in relationships with people. They spent 
12 years growing up teaching you about math. Uh-huh. They, you took more in college, perhaps, or some sort of quantitative requirement. They spent a couple of years teaching you about science. They spent 12 years teaching you English. But they never thought to teach you anything about sleep or anything about relationships other than what Shakespeare said or other people. Mm-hmm. All of those things are valuable. But the, the character education, if you like, the resilience enhancement I'm talking about, how we live, how we function, how we handle stress, I think it's vital for people to understand this because so much of my job as a psychiatrist once people get sick, is really just teaching them this stuff. A lot of it's what we call psychoeducation. It's like teaching them about their brain because mm-hmm. they don't understand why they're feeling so bad, and there's typically a reason. Mm-hmm. So uh, what um, what is the impact of, of technology and social media uh, and all the things that kind of are in our world today that you know weren't when you and I were in, in college or adolescence, and, and how is this impacting the experience of, of adolescence, and how is it ex- impacting the experience of parents? Yeah, this is a, a big deal. There's no question that social media has changed a lot of things in our life, and it doesn't look like it's going away, so I think we have to learn how to deal with it. Um, again, as a father of two teens, later teens, but teens nonetheless, we've had to deal with this, and it hasn't been easy, and we've had to sort of learn as we go. Major medical organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups are recommending that you know we don't give our kids devices for years if we can help it, because we know that it's distracting, that it takes their mind off of certain things. Yes, it's fun, but you know life isn't all about having fun. Life is about uh, learning how to manage yourself in this world and feel like you're productive and that will help make you happy playing more solitaire or, you know, I don't know, you know, call of duty doesn't necessarily make you any happier uh, beyond the, the moment that you're doing it or a distraction. Mm-hmm. What we know about social media. Well, let me tell you something about the brain first that we know and, and why in the case of adolescence, at least social media can be pretty damaging in the last 10 years, we've learned that the brain's social attachment system, that is how we connect to other people, rides on top of the brain's physical pain system. So if you ask people, for example, and I do this when I give talks on this topic, I'll say, you know, what's the most painful experience in your life? What do you imagine most people say? A breakup? Yeah, a breakup, a death of a parent, a death of a pet, a death of a grandparent. Um, not getting into my first college choice that I thought I was going to get into and have them go to my third choice, whatever it was. Sure. I had to drop out of school because I didn't do well enough and then having to regroup. But it's it's almost never uh, when I broke my arm when I was seven or when I got into a car accident when I was 20. Now, if there was a severe and protracted illness, that may come up. Or if there was a you know, major injury in which someone was you know in a body cast for months, that may come up. Yeah. But by and large, people talk about the emotional upset And it's fascinating because we use the same words for physical as well as emotional pain. What hurts you? You know, what's the most painful experience you've ever had? And so it's very clear to us that as we've now been able to study the brain through all sorts of different experiments, that actually the the emotional pain is in the same neural tracts. If this is so real that you can actually give people who are feeling emotional pain medicines like Motrin and Tylenol and they will feel emotionally better. They will feel less pain. Hmm. So in the short run, you know, when you feel hurt over a breakup, you know, taking a a gram of, of Tylenol or 600 Motrin may not be such a terrible idea because at least for those few hours, it's going to dull that pain a little bit. It does actually make us feel less, less uh, bad. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that when you think about 
how adolescents engage with each other through social media, they now have an opportunity to feel excluded all day long. Mm -hmm. You can see that you weren't tagged in a Facebook photo. You can see that your friends were invited to a party, but you weren't. You can see using the snap map on Snapchat where all your friends are gathering and somehow you don't know about that gathering. And maybe you even asked one of them if they were free tonight and they said no, but then you see all of them hanging out at somebody's house because you can see this on your phone. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity for kids to feel left out. And when kids feel left out, they feel pain. And this is why to a mother or father of a 13-year-old or a 17-year-old, you're like, why are you so upset? So you didn't get invited to the party. Like, whatever, you know, just get over it. But it, it feels like physical pain. And it's so important that we feel that pain so that, again, back to our evolutionary argument, we will do everything possible to get with our peers so that we can mate and be successful. So it's life or death for them. It's not just like I wasn't invited to the party. It's like I wasn't invited to the party and therefore my genes will not live on. And wow. so it's become very, very important to us that we that we have that sort of connection to our peers. And you have to ask yourself then, what would an adolescent do if they were left out? And what would they do to not feel left out? Well, they'd take a risk. Hmm. You know, if somebody else is jumping off that bridge into the river, then they'll probably do it because being left out is too painful. If they're racing cars, then they'll probably do it. If they're drinking the, you know, 10th beer in that, that hour, they'll probably do it because they don't want to feel left out. So social media has only allowed our kids to feel more left out and therefore I think to engage in more risk. And I think then it's incumbent upon parents and really honestly, some of the companies that are making these devices to be more thoughtful about how we give them to kids. You know, I don't know if it's true or not, but everybody always said Steve Jobs said he'd never give his kids an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And if it's true, then he understood something about this. He understood how damaging this constant contact is. You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I had an experience even as an adult um, where I was in, in a, a pseudo long distance relationship and it was 24 seven just chatting on Facebook. And when it ended, I don't think it was the person's physical contact because I didn't see them very much in person. It, and, you know, my business partner, Brian, said he's like, that was like cutting a rat off a cocaine supply. He said, <laughs> you know, he's like, that's what would explain the, the tailspin. He's like, if you're constantly getting this dopamine surge all day long and then suddenly it's gone. Um, it's not surprising that it sends you into a depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's probably right. And it's this idea that you stopped having this thing to look forward to, stopped having this connection. And again, you were an adult. So imagine being a kid and having this constant give and take. You know, my kids have said to me numerous times, you know, I kind of wish I grew up in a world without cell phones. And, you know, that's, I hear patients tell me that too. Teenagers tell me that sometimes like, oh, this thing is such a pain in the ass. And they don't know how to live without it because they never had to. So I think giving our kids some real breaks, you know, like we call these like digital holidays or digital fasts where we basically say, okay, for 24 hours or we're going away this weekend, we're not bringing phones. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife and I um, would take a lot of vacations with our kids when they were younger and we would go away you know, three or four times a year, you know, for a weekend or to, uh, for a week. And sometimes we'd drive, sometimes we'd fly, but we would never let them take any digital device with them. And it just forced them to be with us. It forced them to be in the moment. It, you know, we had a harder time with it because we had work obligations ourselves. And so we had to be very mindful of not being on our devices too, because that's not the message you want to send. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
You know, so one of the things that, um, you know, we, we were talking about before, uh, you know, we hit record here is the fact that, you know, you went to Berkeley um, and uh, it sounds like we had, had similar experiences. I didn't even attempt the pre-med thing. Like I got there and I was like, yeah, there's no way. And even then I got really shitty grades. But I, one thing that really struck me was, you know, this moment in your life when you were discouraged from, you know, a career in medicine. And, you know, here you are, you know, like, a, a, you know, a psychiatrist who's written a book like you've clearly had a successful career in medicine. Um one, you know, how did you deal with and process that moment? And, you know, how do parents deal with this in their own kids when they see that, okay, you know, this is not going to lead you somewhere? Um, you know, so I, I can tell you that there's there's a couple other questions that come from this. I think, you know, it's funny. My parents will deny this to the day that they die uh, about encouraging me to become a doctor. But pretty much my entire life, I was told, yeah, if you want a good life, become a doctor. And I think as a result, I decided not to become a doctor. Uh, so how do you know the two questions in one I realized like where do parents draw the line between sort of you know encouraging their kids or doing what your parents did to put you back on track and not stifling them and then how did you you know process this entire sort of ability to to bounce back when somebody tells you you don't you know you're not going to have a career in medicine and yet here you do, here you are today yeah so you know I, I what you're referring to is you know my second year of college I got a D in organic chemistry and there's no way you're getting into medical school with a D you yeah. can't really go on in a series of organic chemistry with a, with a D so I couldn't take part two of the class so I I had to decide what to do and I went to see my advisor who was a very nice guy uh, Peter and Peter said you know listen you're not going to get into medical school so what else interests you you know what other kind of things do you like to do and and how else would you want to spend your career and you're doing well in history classes and you know whatever else and that was discouraging to hear but not surprising but it wasn't the first time i'd been discouraged i think early on that experience of doing poorly in high school that we talked about earlier uh, my first year of high school was was an experience where i knew i could come back i think um going to berkeley which you know only a few kids from my high school went to we were 2000 in my high school 500 graduating and i think maybe you know half a dozen at most went to berkeley and ucla combined it wasn't many and there were a few who went to private schools here and there but mostly kids went to the local community college or didn't go to college some went to state schools and the idea that i could um get through all of that and become uh, a Berkeley student. I don't know. There was something inside of me that just, I mean, it made me anxious at the time. I remember, and I felt terrible. Um, I don't think I got depressed. At least I, I wouldn't have known at the time if I were, but I, but I know that I felt like angry and frustrated and I hated the teacher, but other kids had gotten A's. So what was wrong with me? And I decided to go back at it. And I went back the next year and I got a B plus. And the next time I took it, it wasn't great, but I got an A the next semester in organic chemistry too. And I just kept pushing through those classes thinking, well, I don't know if I want to be a doctor or not, but I want to at least have the option. So I'm going to finish these pre-med requirements that you need to have. And I did major in history because I really like history. And I got a lot of empowerment there. I was an A student in history and I learned to write better and I learned to express my ideas better. And, you know, I was one of those kids who was always nice and always um, did well when I got in front of a group, but I would worry about getting in front of a group and I would get sweaty and shaky when I raised my hand in class, you know, until I felt really comfortable there. And I didn't want to feel that way. I wanted to be braver. I wanted to be more outgoing. And so putting myself in history actually really demanded that. I had to put my ideas on paper more. I had to stand up in front of the class and give presentations and ask questions. And I became um, really a man on campus. I was on the Chancellor's Committee on Student Conduct. I was one of the coordinators, counselors and coordinators of CALSO, the Cal Student Orientation Program at Berkeley. I'm, I'm a member of the Order of the Golden Bear, this honor society at Berkeley. I really 
turned into a, a guy on campus who knew a lot of people and I was dating the vice president of the school back then. And I, I don't know, I just really, it became a great playground for me. And I think a lot of times these stumbling blocks are huge opportunities for us. I think if, you know, we hear this all the time, but I, I know in my life it's true. If you don't have a challenge that's meaningful, that it's worth working for, then I think, you know, what are you here for? You know, I think that there's, I think there's a lot that gets us motivated. And for me, it was, you know, this Texan who, who was a terrible teacher in organic chemistry who whistled when he spoke like the guy on family guy. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to master this class. Like I am just going to fight this down. And I took it again and did well. And I think that that's, I think that there's a real uh, a lesson there for all of us. Mm, wow. So I want to finish um, by talking specifically about this area of risk, you know, which is really what your work in this book has been about. And I have some interesting sort of takes on, on you know, risk because it's funny. So I guess the easiest way to preface this is with a couple of stories. So, you know, my sister, by the time she got to Berkeley, she was kind of like done all that, you know, you know, partied while she was in high school, went to parties where she drank and did drugs. And as a result, by the time she got to Berkeley, it wasn't all that interesting to her. Um, and she was a really good student. Uh, you know, especially growing up in an immigrant family, if you're the first kid, you're always the experiment. Like my parents, you know, didn't understand that, you know, in seventh grade, it's important to be popular and have nice clothes. When they got that, you know, with my sister, they're like, oh, we've been through this before. So we can we don't you know, basically, I was the experiment and they got to fix all those mistakes on my sister. Um, and so what's interesting to me is, you know, we're talking about risk. And, and part of me wonders is, you know, like, where is that line of risk, you know, in terms of, OK, because I, I think, you know, much of my behavior that was risky I engaged in because I wasn't exposed to it earlier on. Yeah, I think that it's hard to know. I I don't think, honestly, what we know from looking at statistics, at least, is that we're better off holding off on engaging in risk for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, like your sister, I really engaged in most of my risky behavior in junior high school and early high school. You know, I I tried cocaine when I was in eighth grade. I got drunk for the first time in sixth grade. I held I, I was stealing cigarettes from the grocery store when I was eight years old. And I grew up in a sort of a, a youngest of five kids. It was a it was a, a loving but a very um, sort of free range childhood. You know, people were kind of doing their own thing and no one really knew where everyone was. And it wasn't until my parents had that history of buildup of seeing what happens to kids when they don't get a lot of, you know, supervision. And I started to do poorly in school. That's when they really sat on me. But I look back not long ago, my parents moved. They're in their 90s now. And I was going back in my report cards. And in fifth grade, I I got a D in math in fifth grade. That was my grade for the semester. So, like, what the hell were they doing then? You know, that would have been a great time to intervene. It might have made a difference. Mm -hmm. They waited until the grades really mattered or until they had the time and could pay attention and really notice what was going on. But I was a, a bright kid. There's no reason I should be getting a D in math. I just wasn't, I didn't care. So, I, I think that I engaged in risk early. Then by the time I started to get some self-efficacy, some good feeling out of doing well in school, by that time, when my friends were now drinking in 10th grade, 11th grade, and like, let's get drunk on the weekend, I'm like, you know, I'd done that before. I did that in sixth grade. I did that in seventh grade. I don't need to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was getting more fulfillment, not out of drinking, but out of doing well in my classes and knowing that I was going to be a doctor in that, at that time or that I was going to go on and have a, a good career. And I, I really was lucky. But 
And I did see people again in, in college who'd never done that stuff in high school and they got sort of unleashed in college and kind of went a little berserk then. Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference in how we raise our kids. I think that if you raise your kid like you can never do this and you got to be afraid of it and I'm going to punish you severely if you do this, then you have kids who often go off to college and they're like, all right, let it roll, baby, you know, <laughs> dying to get out there and do it. But I think that for those kids whose parents talk with them about this stuff, don't yeah. they're not authoritarian, but they're authoritative. They say, listen, you know, I understand. A lot of kids do these things and we understand this happens. I want to tell you this isn't good for you. I want to tell you that if you go out and get drunk, I don't want you driving home. I will always come pick you up and we'll have a talk about it the next morning. But, you know, and and there may be a consequence, but I am I am. I, I would much rather know than not know, and we're going to work this out together. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to wait as long as possible because right now, if you drink at 13 or 15 or 17, you do much more damage to your brain and your future than you do if you drink at 25. And we know that if you don't drink by the time you're 25, or if you don't smoke marijuana by the time you're 25, there's a really, really small chance that you'll ever pick it up. So. The longer we hold off people, the longer their brains have a chance to develop in the way that is good for them. And it gives them more choices and more flexibility as adults. And that's, you know, another thing we're not teaching in school is neuroscience in general. Uh-huh. And you don't teach anything about the brain. I learned nothing about the brain growing up. So again, we know a lot more about this organ. There's a lot more we can teach kids. And that kind of messaging, I think, is valuable. There's a lot of other things, which I, I talk about in the book, that focus on helping our kids to manage and think about how uh, to to moderate the risk of drinking and smoking and you know unprotected sex and all of that. But I don't think it's as simple as if they don't do it in high school, they'll go crazy in college, or if they do it in high school, they won't do it in college. I think it's more likely if they do it in high school, they'll do it in college. So (laughs) what you want to do is you kind of want to – your sister and I were, were somewhat exceptional, but I think because we had probably found what fulfilled us early on. It's not like I didn't get drunk in college or as an adult or I didn't smoke weed in college, but nothing like when I was younger. Yeah. That's funny. Didn't smoke weed in college. My parents, I finally came clean with my parents about three weeks ago. They were like, have you smoked weed? I'm like, I went to Berkeley. What do you guys think? (laughs) They were like, do you still? I was like, yeah, I have a prescription. It was kind of amusing to see. And it was funny. They're like, we're not idiots. We know that you smoke. (laughs) um, But it was, you know, just to to not have had that conversation with my parents in all these years was really interesting, which I I think kind of makes me want to close with sort of a a final question around drugs in particular. Um, You know, like I know that there's been research and and stuff around sort of the effective uh, effectiveness of of microdosing psychedelics. Um, We're seeing, you know, legalization happening of marijuana everywhere, you know, across multiple states. What I mean, so how does that play into all of this uh, as far as your view goes? Because I, you know, like I don't imagine I'm going to stop smoking marijuana anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when it comes to young people, um, there's a lot of reasons we're legalizing marijuana, which have nothing to do with knowing how good or bad it is for us. You know, we don't the, the jury is really out on lots of aspects of marijuana, particularly how it affects us in the long run, mm-hmm. how bad it is for our lungs, how, how bad or good it is for our brains, how bad or good it is for our kidneys and livers. You know that we haven't really been studying this drug in the same way, but it is a drug. And like everything we put in our body, it has an effect. And some drugs uh, or foods have psychoactive effects. And this is one of them. So understanding now that it's becoming legalized and we're able to do studies on it, then we're going to learn more in the next decade. And, you know, you may or may not decide that you still want to smoke it in 10 years if you're still using it. And because you may know more, we have a lot of concern about marijuana uh, 
be, being a trigger or a precipitant of psychosis in young people. Mm. And there's been gathering data on that. There's a little bit of data to oppose it, but there's a, a fair amount of data to suggest that it's a real thing. And particularly kids who are pre-psychotic or kids who are pre-depressive and they have the risk of becoming manic or depressed or psychotic, then giving them marijuana and having it readily available may not only trigger their episode sooner, which is not good for them, but also make it harder to recover from and potentially worse. So there, these are things we need to learn about. For most typical people, um, we don't really know what marijuana does to them other than get them high or relieve a little bit of pain or anxiety or help them sleep or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be learning a lot. And I think the states are doing this largely because they need the money. Like we rolled out lotteries again many years ago because we needed the money, not because everybody thinks we should be gambling, but <laughs> right. we need the money. And marijuana is like, it's a great product to tax. Yeah. So all these states like California after January, when it goes legal, they're going to balance their budget for the first time in you know, decades. And that's going to be incredible for them because- uh -huh. The, the they need the income. But, you know, I, I think on the other hand, when we make it legal, we tell our kids that, well, when you're 18 or 21, it's OK, sure. which really, you know, when we say that, then we sort of mean that, you know, you can experiment when you're 13 or 15. And I, and I think <laughs> that there's, there's a risk with that. Honestly, I don't I don't know what the risk is. Yeah. But I think, again, the message to parents is really you're better off holding off all use as long as possible, no matter what you do specifically. And your kids, you know, you can tell your kids, you don't have to tell your kids, you know, they don't need to know. I mean, if you have kids and, and your kids, when you're when they're eight, say, Daddy, do you smoke marijuana? You can be truthful and tell them. You can also not tell them and you can say, you know, that's something we'll talk about when you're older or I don't want to talk about that right now. You're the parent and you still run the show. And it's about being consistent and straight with your kids so that they know what to expect as opposed to giving them everything they want whenever they want it. Mm. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been truly fascinating. You've packed it with so much valuable insight and information. So I'm going to finish with uh, my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Huh. Unmistakable. Well, I, I suppose it's it's. Um, what do we mean by unmistakable? Uh, I, I sort of think of unmistakable as it's not by accident or unique in some way or in in some um, in some format who they are. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist, so I I, I get very biological around these kinds of things. I think it's some combination of genetic predisposition and exposures that people have as they age uh, in terms of who makes them what they are. I think we have a lot of choice in this matter up to a point. But I think that if we grow up in an environment of great neighborhood disorganization and violence and crime and theft, then we have very few choices. And as we age, we don't have the brain flexibility to imagine how else life could be. And so when someone gets us upset, we may respond in a very dogmatic way, violently, passively, whatever we do, but not see a lot of flexibility. So, you know, in my life, the, the, the things that have been meaningful to me have been having enough opportunity and enough competition and competitive drive to pursue it. And I think that not all kids have that opportunity, but to give people a little bit of a stumbling block as well as opportunity to overcome it in the way we've been talking about resilience. I think, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking as I, as I go here, but I would say that the opportunity to establish and enhance your own resilience, your own belief in yourself is probably the thing that matters the most in terms of our uniqueness. Mm. Wow. Amazing. Uh, where can people learn more about you, your work, uh, and the book? 
Yeah, sure. The book is called Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Uh, teens was the, the word the publisher wanted. I wanted adolescent because we really think about adolescence as being about 12, 13 to about 25, 26. And that is the zone that the book covers. It's filled with stories. Yes, there's science and lots of references, but it's all in the back. And when you read the book, it reads like a story, but there is uh, a lot of learning. And I learned a lot by writing it. So it's Born to be Wild. Uh, I'm Jess Shatkin, S-H-A-T-K-I-N. I have a website, uh, drjesspshatkin.com. There's lots of information there about the things I do, the talks I give, the, the writing and patient care I provide, and uh, the books everywhere, awesome. bookstores, Amazon, etc. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.